This is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I'm Rachel Ho. We are back with our third consecutive year of coverage of the Hot Docs Canadian International Documentary Festival. This is the 29th edition of the festival that celebrates the best in documentary filmmaking from around the world. This year, it ran from April 28th to May 8th, and 225 movies from 63 countries were screened in person in Toronto and online. Today, we are going to discuss five of the films that were shown during the fest. Before we do, how was your hot docs this year, Rachel? Uh, tiring. It came at a bit of a bad time for me this year. I just, I was really overwhelmed with work. And so I didn't get to like devote as much time to hot docs as I wanted to. Um, but I saw some like cool films that we were going to talk about. Um, I also thought it, I always find it funny. Cause like when you just said the whole name of hot doc, hot docs has a very long festival name. Yeah. Like, the hot docs, Canadian international documentary. Festival. It's very long. And I understand why we just call it hot docs. Um, it's also a little redundant was, yeah. hot docs documentary festival. There's, it's, I mean, it's Hot Docs Documentary, Canadian International. Yeah. Like, it's full of contradictions, yeah. <laughs> the festival name. Um, but overall, it was good, though. Like, they did a hybrid this year. Um, I did all online. I did get um, asked to go to uh, one in-person screening, which was uh, Kids in the Hall. They did a fancy premiere over on um, the Hot Docs Cinema, the actual cinema, the theater, on Bloor. And um, unfortunately, I couldn't go. But, like, it, they did... They had a number of screenings in person, like all around Toronto, and they were using the Varsity Theater, their theater, of course, the TIFF Lightbox Theater. Um, and so it seems like a lot of people went, though, which is great. And then they did fully hybrid, like online as well. So I, I think they did a nice job this year of like still considering the fact that not everybody was going to be comfortable going into the movie theaters. That's good. Yeah, it also kind of came at a weird time for me. I was just finishing work mm-hmm. on on the tv show i was working on i didn't think i'd be able to get to anything and uh and i was able to watch some screeners obviously here in vancouver i wasn't able to go to any in person not by <laughs> that's choice. your choice yeah that was um, that, that's that's on you like, <laughs> you know what? i that's... should have flown in for it you're right <laughs> yeah like i always find it fascinating people who fly in for film festivals like not to say hot dogs isn't worth it because i think if you're like a really big documentary head like i understand especially in Canada, like hot dogs is such a big deal. So I get like, but I I find that impressive because I don't know if I'm just there to watch movies, like how many movies, how many festivals around the world would I fly just to simply be like a participant in it? Not somebody who's writing about the movies or anything like Mm. that, but just like, you're just going to watch movies. I always find that really fascinating. The people who decide to do that because they must really, really love whatever that film festival is about. Like if it's just general film or whatever her documentaries so i think it's interesting so you should have where what's up with your dedication obviously Um, like something like can i would go to but that seems like such a a different planet but like things like sundance or tell you ride that would be a pretty fun festival to go to in person sundance i'd love to go to i'm not that interesting going to can can's actually coming up uh was it next week i think i know a bunch of people are flying over now but um i'm not that interested because it feels very stuffy to me like it feels very like you need to be very, you know, you have to pack like nice clothes. Whereas <laughs> something like Sundance and Tiff, you just show up like you just, yeah. you know, wear whatever you want, basically. So, but I, I think Sundance would be really cool. I actually would, I wanted to go this year, but then um, obviously for obvious reasons, it didn't work out. So um, maybe next year, who knows? I know a lot of people fly in for Tiff. And, and yeah. I think it's because it is such an easy festival to sort of navigate as a film watcher. 
You know, mm-hmm. you can go and, and go to the rush lines and, and wait in line yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. And you could still see a lot of the stuff you want to see. You can check out the red carpet and it's like very much easy to sort of make a personal connection to the festival. I guess that's why TIFF has the reputation it does in comparison to like Cannes or Venice even. Yeah. Because those ones are, uh, those feel a bit more, um, like I said, like just a bit fancier and a bit more industry-like, I think. Like, whereas TIFF is one that is, it does really feel like it's for people who like to watch movies and Mm -hmm. you can just, and like, like the midnight madness um, program, like the fact that they have something like that. And it's such a unique crowd that goes to midnight madness. So I, yeah, I think Tiff does a good job. I I think we're also talking about it. Purposely cultivate that image because it makes people want to come back to it. And it also makes filmmakers and celebrities sort of feel like they're connecting with their audience because it, for the most True. for the most part it's the first time anyone is seeing this movie outside of people that worked on it sort of thing and so it's that's just an true. easy way for them to sort of connect real time with people yeah that's very true that's very true yeah. i mean but if people they know what they're doing they know what they're up to they don't need our opinion <laughs> they don't need our advice on exactly but we're here to talk about hot dogs today and mm-hmm. there were five movies that we both watched uh, I watched one that you didn't see, and I think you saw a few more that I didn't see. So if we have time, we might we might touch on that a little bit. But for now, we're going to focus on on five that we both saw. The first one is a movie called Blue Island, which won the Best International Documentary Feature Award. And the jury noted that for its evocative use of reenactments interwoven with traditional documentary forms to create a rich, socially grounded cinematic tapestry, the jury is honored to present the Best International Feature Film Award to Blue Island, directed by Chan Zi Woon. And the description of the movie is, an egalic corollary to the fiery documentaries that captured Hong Kong's recent protest movement and its crackdown. The hybrid Blue Island takes stock of the region in an era where most pro-democracy protesters have either fled into exile or been forced into custody. Hong Kong This is a really beautiful and interesting documentary, and and I'm glad we're talking about it because for me, it's just fascinating seeing the comparisons of the Mao's Cultural Revolution that happened in the late 60s through to the 80s and how that older generation of people who who fought against the oppressive nature of that uh, dictatorship and then eventually now we're going back to these new anti-dictatorship protests where Hong Kong is trying to be swallowed up by mainland China. And you've got a a lot of these like student protests and things like that and how, how eerily similar they are. It's one of those things where like uh, the more things change, the more they don't change sort of thing. And so it's got this Mm -hmm. really beautiful sort of like older generation, younger generation look at, Hey, back in my day, this is what it was like. Oh yeah, we're going through the same thing. The only difference is now, you know, there's security cameras everywhere and everyone's recording everything on their phone and, and police have more high tech weapons and things like that. But you know, on the surface, it's, it's exactly the same. And so for that, I found it just so interesting that you were able to take two eras and compare them so similarly of the people that were going through the same thing, because yeah, it's, it's so much of 
Are you a good person if you flee your country and turn your back on, on your family and friends? Are you a bad person if you stay and fight and get arrested and thrown in jail for 20 years? What happens if you get killed? What happens? All this sort of stuff. What happens if you eventually become what you fought against for years, which people in the U.S. are, are very familiar with, a sort of like hippie anti-war revolution eventually became all the people that are now in control of society right now. They all turn their back on that. So it was just such a fascinating look at Hong Kong as a whole. But uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this one, Rachel. Yeah. So, I mean, this one was the, um, probably the one documentary when I was going through the list that really stuck out to me. Um, my parents are from Hong Kong. They're born there, raised there. They moved to Canada back in I think it was seventies, eighties. I should know that. Um, but yeah, they moved around then and, and then like they had my brother and I. And so um, it was obviously, it's like a very personal story. And I, I'm, it's tough sometimes because Hong Kong, like the topic of Hong Kong has become a very, very uh, divisive issue, even amongst like Chinese people. Um, and I'm not just saying like amongst like, like mainlander versus Hong Kong people or something like that. Like even within Hong Kong people groups, there's a big divide about who is quote unquote right and who is wrong. Um, I loved like what you said about the movie, how they go back and they look at, uh, they look at three very, um, very important events that kind of shaped Hong Kong to be what it is today, which is uh, like you said, the, the um, cultural revolution in mainland China and the number of people, like it was like in the thousands of people who fled um, and, basically swam over like it, it's it's quite the story of like them wanting to have freedom and hong kong at the times like it was looked at as being what they call like a joy joy island like joy island and it's like a beacon of freedom and it represents a lot of the things that um we associate kind of with western democracy whether right or wrong um and then they talk about the riots that happened in the 60s and that was actually pro ccp riots that were against the British rule in Hong Kong. Um, and then they looked at what was happening in Tiananmen Square in, uh, in the 80s, in 1989, where uh, obviously that, that, and that was led by student protests. Um, so there's a lot of interesting threads to draw to today. Like you have people, like generations who fought against British rule and fought for the CCP. And now they're kind of here going, well, what's going on? Like now we're fighting you know, I'm not that patriotic anymore. Like I kind of see it through a different lens now. And then you have, like you said, the people who fled the cultural revolution to find freedom in a better way of life. And now all of a sudden they're finding that that very place is not, has been like, as you very um, eloquently said, it's like being swallowed up by the same regime mm -hmm. that had them in the first place. And then you have the, the generational divide of the young and the old. Like that's, I think the biggest knock-on point is that the older generation is looking at the younger student generation um, in Hong Kong right now and looking at them and saying, how are you guys doing so much property damage? Like you guys are causing all these problems with the police, like how you guys aren't acting like educated individuals. So there is that kind of fracturing within Hong Kong. And, but then, you know, if you look at the protests at Tiananmen Square, that was all led by students. And those are the same people who are the ones criticizing students today. So I think it's, it highlights like a lot of things. It's a great, it's a great film that just kind of encapsulates 
what Hong Kong has been through. And some of the themes that they talk about is the fact that like Hong Kong never really had its own identity. It's always been a thing of, it had um, traditional Chinese values. It's had expat influences. It's had British influences, obviously. And um, so it's never really been kind of been able to dictate its own culture and what it wants to be. And now obviously we see that again, because now we see the CCP coming in and, and putting their culture over whatever we consider Hong Kong culture right now. Um, and then, you know, the, the threads of, of looking at the differences between the old and the young. And to me, that's a very universal thing. Like, like you said, you drew, drew comparison to the Americans. Um, it's very easy when we're young to look at things through, you know, the rose tinted glasses and we're young and we're youthful and you, you're, you're more idealistic at that age when you're a student. And then as the world like hardens you, as you get older, you kind of look back and you're like, what the hell? Like, you know, and, and you, I think people also are very biased and saying like, well, we fought for something that was worthwhile. You guys are just being ridiculous right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, it, it's, it encouraged a lot of discussion amongst my own family uh, of, you know, is it worth it? I think that's a big question too. Like, is it really worth fighting for? Because, you know, without getting overly political here, it's like, it's a losing battle. Like Hong Kong isn't going to win this fight. That's just not what's going to happen. So what's the point kind of, but then you go, well, why would you just sit back and not do anything? So many of the great revolutions around the world, like had nobody stood up and done something, the world would look like a very, very different place if everyone yeah. just sat back and let dictators and authoritarian regimes take over. So it's an interesting movie. I loved it, obviously. Like, I mean, it's pretty much a movie that I I told every single one of my friends who has Hong Kong roots. I was like, you guys need to go watch this. And I showed the trailer to a bunch of them and they were all like, I, a few of them, to be fair, a few of them were pregnant. So they're a bit hormonal and they're like, I'm crying watching this, <laughs> this trailer. I was like, it is sad. Like it is very sad, especially for people who, were born there and grew up there because the Hong Kong of today is incredibly different to what it was um, even back in like the nineties, you know, like after 97 things changed quite a bit. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's a tough watch. And I always try to think of it like, what if Canada kind of had gone through the same thing? Like what if in 50 some odd years, we look back and Canada is like a, just a completely different country, which it will be, but like in maybe more of a negative way, you know, and how would we react to that? kind of thing so yeah i i loved it though and i'm have my eye out for when it will have a wider release because i think it's one of those movies that um deserves to be seen by everybody but particularly if if your family's from hong kong you're from hong kong i think it's a really great um it's a really really great film it's it's sort of interesting where i could definitely see this movie maybe being on the radar for the oscars for next year because you know it's, it's a very well-made movie it's got a unique angle to it. I think the the commentary and the politics behind it are very timely. And so I would not be shocked if it ends up, you know, being, you know, maybe one of the the 10 to 15 movies that are sort of in consideration and end up making like the long list for the Oscars because of just how well made this is. But it, yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Because um, what was it? Was it last year or two years ago? I think um, there was a short, a documentary short called Do Not Split. And that was yes. just about the protests. And that, um, you know, China was not happy about that. And I think they didn't air the, the Oscars that year in China because of that was nominated. Yeah, um, I love that documentary so, short. That was so good. I won't lie. I, I couldn't finish it. Not because oh. it was bad. I just, I felt so sad about it. I just was oh, like, yeah, I can't yeah. finish. I couldn't, I couldn't watch the whole thing. But it, like, I mean, that in itself is, is um, 
a good reaction. I would love it. I think like what you said, like we were talking more about, or I was talking more about the kind of the subject matter of it. But like, if we look at it strictly from a filmmaking perspective, they do some really cool things with reenactments, like reenactments and documentaries are always a little bit dodgy. Like sometimes they just don't turn out well and they look like, you know, one of those A&E documentaries you'll see on a Saturday mm-hmm. afternoon. Um, and they just kind of look kind of tacky and stuff. With like and a bad wig it's, on someone. Yeah, it's, it's hard. Like it's hard to to bring history back to life without a massive budget that like HBO could give you or something like that. Yeah. But these guys, what they did was um, they would do the reenactments. And then I think like one of the key things was, is that they, they interviewed people who were actually involved in, you know, whatever event it was. So they, they found people who actually did flee from the cultural revolution and they did swim over um, through the Harbor, but into Hong Kong and asked them for their opinion. And then they had uh, student protesters act out, like do the reenactments. And then they had like kind of a, a meta, is it meta kind of where yeah. they were in the, the, the older generation who actually experienced it. They actually were in the reenactment and they were asked like, is this what it was like? Like, is this, mm-hmm. is this how it was? And, and they kind of talk through it. And I found that really interesting because it's like doing the reenactments, but completely breaking the fourth wall that this is not, obviously it's not real. Like we're just doing reenactments and we're going to get opinion on it. I found that really interesting. Um, and I hadn't seen that before, but you mentioned to me that there was another documentary that kind of did something similar to that. Yeah. Yeah. It was one that immediately came to mind where there's a filmmaker named Joshua Oppen. Um, oh no, I'm blanking out his name right now. Um, who made two films, uh, one called The Act of Killing, and then a sequel called The Look of Silence. Joshua Oppenheimer, I was right. Okay, yeah, Joshua Oppenheimer was the director. And and it looked at the Khmer Rouge regime in Cambodia and The Act of Killing he was interviewing members of this regime that were like mid to high ranking officials in the army who were carrying out these heinous acts against its own people that they were accusing of, of being communist and got them to reenact these brutal torture and murder sessions, but done in a style of popular Western movies that they were fans of. So, you know, they put on dresses and did a little musical number singing and dancing about how they're going to kill all the communists and things like that. And you're just watching this, Uh just like literally like your mouth is on the floor and your eyes are wide open and like tears are streaming down your face. And you're just like, what is going on here? And they're all laughing and joking. You're like, Oh no, that's not how you, you chopped off someone's head. This is how you did it. Like, Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Oh yeah. And this is where the blood was all pooled up. And you're just like, what is going on here? (laughs) And then in the sequel, the, the look of silence, it takes, um, it's this, it's this guy who is the son, his family was was all murdered and he was much younger uh so he's now interviewing these same people from the first movie just sort of asking them what they did because now they like are local politicians and own a car dealership and own a business and things like that and so they have this like weird influence over the community still even though the Khmer Rouge is clearly not in control anymore and some people still support them and some people don't and it's just very weird and like at one point like this guy gets threatened by these people too, but I'm not talking about these movies. They're, they're fantastic. I will literally never watch them again, but they're, they're beautiful works of art (laughs) and some of the best documentaries ever made. That said, the reason why I bring them up is because this, this idea of reenacting what had happened with actual people that had experienced it and, and 
in juxtaposing it with today's society and things like that, I, I thought it was just like a very unique way to sort of look at history and retell it. And, you know, there's this, there's this one scene in particular later on in the movie where, uh, they're reenacting a scene that takes place in a jail cell. And so they've got this student mm. who is now playing uh, this person from back in the sixties and seventies who is sitting in jail. He's awaiting his trial. And then they're showing the after where they're just sitting there in this, you know, I don't know if it's a real jail cell or if it's just a set. I think it's real. And they're yeah, talking to each real. other. And we learn that this young man is actually has been arrested and he's awaiting his court date to be sentenced. And so they're talking about what's it like being in prison and how time passes by and all this sort of stuff. And it just sort of hits this young guy so hard and so real because he's been so caught up in the moment of trying to protest, fight, 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 fight. And all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, this is what my life is going to be. And this older man is kind of explaining, yeah, it really sucks. Yeah. I mean, and, and that guy in particular, so he was arrested in when he was in middle school um, for participating in the riots in, in the 60s. Um, and he was saying, like, he has another bit in the way where he was like, I was so patriotic towards the CCP back then. Like, he was so patriotic. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and he's like, yeah, now. And, and I found it interesting. Like, the interesting thing is, one, he was released from prison when he was 17. And so he was still able to, you know, put his life back together, which he did, but he was saying like, it was tough. It was really, really difficult because for as much as we look at, um, you know, criminal reform is, is quite a topic, especially I find in North America, more so in the States, I think than in Canada, but we, we do put a mark against people who have been um, imprisoned. And even if they were young, like it's still something that comes up and uh, in like background checks, like we all have to do background checks when you join a new company, that kind of thing. Right. Um, but in Hong Kong, it's it's really stig- uh, like um, has a real stigma attached to it that you were like a criminal. Like it's really it's quite like oh, I remember my mom watching. She went, oh, no, like he was a criminal. Like, you know, even <laughs> though. Yeah, it's because it's just it's just the traditional way of looking at it. Like, why did you end up in jail? Like, what did you do? Even though if it was just something kind of noble, it, it to them, it's like, no, like you broke the law. And that's kind of, you know, in keeping with this. I don't, I'm not going to encompass all East Asians in this, but there is this idea of like, you know, we're, we're a bit more obedient as a culture. Like we listen to our elders and and we have great reverence for that and um, for rule. And I mean, you can kind of see where China ended up being where they are right now. Um, but I found like their conversation was so, so interesting to me because, you know, you would think that the older guy who was arrested back then he would have a bit more maybe empathy or compassion for why the younger student was doing what he was doing. But in fact, it was kind of the opposite of just like, what's the point? Like he was the one, I think I I pulled a quote from it in my review and it was like in the 150 years, like when have we ever been able to dictate what happens in, in, in Hong Kong? Like never. So why do this? Like kind of, why are you ruining your life and making it that much more difficult for you um, you're young, like you have everything ahead of you. So why would you do that? And then the younger guy, like, you know, again, it's, it's youth and idealism where you just go, well, this is what's right. Like, this is what I believe to be right. And uh, it's, it's like, it's beyond Hong Kong and what's going on there right now. It's such a fascinating look um, of life in general. Like when you grow up and you look back at the things that you did when you were younger and knowing that, like, there's a bit of a universality to doesn't matter the time period, the era, like what is happening. 
students and young people will always be a certain way and older people will always be another way, even though at one point the older people were those young people, mm-hmm. right? Like, and I, I find that really interesting. Like, and that, that's more of a kind of a, a broader theme to it. But yeah, that, that, that interaction between the two of them was, um, very, very touching and very moving. It's quite, it's, it's, it generates a lot of discussion, I think. Yeah. I think the last thing I sort of want to touch on about this movie mm-hmm. is I liked how the very end, right before the end credits, there's, you know, a whole parade of, of faces that we get to see mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. and what they are arrested for. And like some of them are like assaulting a police officer, like, oh, that sounds a little serious. And then a lot of them were just like unlawful gathering. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah. And I think an interesting thing too to know is like, they put the occupations of the people um, there and it kind of showed that it was students. It was like district counselors. It was delivery men. It Mm -hmm. was musicians, actors. It was, you know, like postmen, like it was a really wide swathe of people. Um, It showed it wasn't just a particular demographic. It wasn't just socio demographic, like a socioeconomic group either. This was something that was felt across the entirety of the population of Hong Kong. And, you know, it didn't matter who you are, what you did, like everybody felt it in some way, shape or form. And yeah, you're, I, I really like that too. And it went on for a really long time, which also was very concerning. <laughs> like yeah. it was just person after person after person after person. And yeah, it just, you know, and, and these people, they're, they're literally waiting to see what happens to them, you know, and um. I, I, who knows what's going to happen to them, but I, you know, there, there's more high profile people who, uh, it was in the news recently, like the more high profile people have been um, jailed and they're going to court and stuff like that. But those guys that were in the film, like they're such small kind of underlings. Um, it, they're going to, I think, be waiting for a really long time, which is quite torturous in itself, mm-hmm. isn't it? All right. So let's move on to another movie that I think is going to have just as much interesting discussion, maybe for different reasons. But the next movie we're going to talk about is Eternal Spring, which won two awards, one for the Rogers Audience Choice Award for Best Canadian Feature and the Hot Docs Audience Award, which is basically a people's choice selection. And the, the... this movie is after meeting a survivor of an activist group that boldly hacked Chinese state television to protest human rights violations, exiled illustrator Na Shang, I hope I said that correctly, recreates the events through his art and thrillingly captures the inspiring tale of defiance in the face of injustice. So on the surface, you know, Blue Island, Eternal Spring, they kind of sound sort of similar the way that they're talking about, you know, fighting Chinese oppression and, and things like that. It's very interesting. And this movie also has a very unique spin on it where it's about half animated, where it's sort of instead of using reenactments, using actors to reenact the events, they animate the events in a very unique sort of early 2000s computer generated video style that kind of had a bit of a video game look to it. But then the more you kind of are watching it and the politics being discussed, the more murkier it feels and you're kind of left not really sure of what's happening. And and it's one of the times where I can look at a movie and be like, this is a technically impressive movie, I think, from a perspective of how it was filmed and the choices they made there and the actual interviews all very well done but then once you start breaking apart what it all means the kind of um more uneasy i felt about it what about you yeah it's it's 
it's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting because, you know, so Falun Gong, and it's been such a, it's such a testy topic that, and, and it's a, I say religious group with a bit of a little flexibility in that quote unquote religious group. <laughs> um, it's, it's fat, like, okay, pa- paired up with Blue Island. I think it is very interesting in that they're both kind of looking at the same end in terms of saying like, we're fighting against the oppression and the persecution that the CCP is placing upon us. Um, and you could say the same thing, you know, there's, there's been many, many reports about what is going on in, in Northern China against um, the Uyghur uh, group of people in like quote unquote re-education camps. Mm-hmm. And so they're all, and like, and Taiwan is another one. Macau is another one. Like they're all looking at the same final point, like the same kind of conclusion, which is the CCP. Yeah. Like the CCP is doing some really shitty things. And um, this is not the way that the world operates anymore. This is, it's 2022, you know, the world is not, um, the, the days of, of authoritarian regimes are a bygone era. We hope like that's kind of the hope for what's going on. Obviously we see in other countries like Russia, that's not exactly the case. Um, but it, they're coming at it from such different ways that it's hard. Like you can't just clump everything together. Like you can't just say it's, it's a monolithic cause, you know, because what is going on with, you know, what they're talking about in eternal spring, it again, very divisive, like it divides people. And, and I like the idea that it's kind of, it's kind of like a heist movie in a way. Like it's, it's showing that they were trying to take down the, or infiltrate the state, uh, the cable lines for, for state media so that they could air their own. Um, I thought it was funny in the, uh, in the subtitles they kept writing video cd and i thought that was really because vcds were such a big thing back in the day i have i have many of them still um but they wanted to show a vcd of of their cause and like what Falun Gong represents and the teachings and it's good and that kind of a thing uh and so that's what the movie is about but then like you said they add in a lot of um a lot of commentary on this group and their beliefs and it borderlines on being an advertisement for the group. And it it leaves out a lot of key things that kind of make it a controversial group. Uh, You know, there's, they're considered to be, you know, very far right. Like in terms of our Western ideals of what we would consider, like we would consider them to be like a more far right group. Mm -hmm. Um, And they have a lot of very, you know, they're, they're quite homophobic and, and there's, there's a, a decent amount of misogyny involved in, in some of their teachings. Um, and the leader of it, like the founder of it, he's an interesting character himself. Like he's, and it, it, do you know what it reminds me of though? It's like, it reminds me of in, if we take it into a North American context, specifically an American context, it reminds me of like Christian extremists, like those Christian groups that take the teachings of God or whatever. And like, there's one man, usually a man who says like, I am the second coming of whatever, whatever, blah, 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 blah. And then they kind of create this group and they become a leader. And then we kind of put on them a bit of a cult label because they're different and they're, and, and, and potentially could be dangerous. Um, and Falun Gong is kind of like that, except they do operate on Buddhist and Taoist and Taoist traditions of meditation and, um, something called qigong, which is like um, 
kind of like Tai Chi-ish. It's like very slow movements and, and meditative uh, exercise. And so when you do that, it looks very harmless because it's very, you know, uh, nonviolent and, and that is something that they preach as well, but that that's also like a tenant of, uh, of Buddhism is like pacifism. And so it becomes interesting, but it, it's like you said, the more you dig deeper into the group, the more it becomes a bit of a question mark of like, what is going on here? Like, is this movie really about CCP persecution? Is this film really trying to tell us about, um, is it just about the heist? I keep calling it a heist. It's not really a heist, but like, that's just all I could think of. Um, or is it something a little bit more like, is it something that is trying to push people's opinions one way or the other, uh, without giving you a full picture of who they actually are? And I mean, to their credit, I don't think that they need to show who they, they are like, that's up to the individual to, if you are interested in them to like, go and do your own research. Um, and I think that sometimes we rely a bit too much maybe on, on media and entertainment to, to be like, Oh, both sides, the story, like this is their opinion. This is their film. They think the group is one way. Um, you know, I suppose they're in there within their every right to do that. And it creates an interesting conversation about like, you know, in America, those Christian groups can still exist. Like those, those very extreme Christian cult groups, they can exist. And some people think, you know, uh, what was that one? The the Baptist borough church. Yeah. The Westboro Baptist church. They tried to come into Canada and Canada said, no, like you're uh, like a hate group. You, you guys infiltrate hate speech because there is a limit to freedoms. Yeah. Um, despite what the Americans think there is a limit to freedoms and you take the CCP and, and they're a, an extreme on the other end. So it's fascinating to look at, but um, I mean, as a film, I completely agree with you that there's a lot of eyebrow raising in it, but I will, I, I really love the animation though. So on like a very technical aspect, I think that uh, it reminded me of a video game called borderlands. I don't know if you ever played mm, that, yep. but it just really rem- like the aesthetic of it. I love that. Like I love that kind of illustration and imagery. I think it's beautiful. Yeah, where it almost looks like two dimensional drawings made three D. Like kind of like rotoscoping too, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, like, yeah, it yeah. Kind of yeah, has that bit. feel to it. Yeah. Uh, I, I think to back up a little bit, sort of explain Falun Gong to anyone who, who doesn't really know. You probably have seen them in Toronto. You probably see their their group outside City Hall. They mm-hmm. usually wear all yellow and and do these like large formation exercises that sort of look like Tai Chi, where they're like very slow movement. They're focused on on the breath and and clean slow movement, focusing your energy and things like that. So you've definitely seen them around and. I didn't really know much more than that. I, I kind of knew a little bit. I heard about them a bit, but I never really done a lot. But it's interesting watching a movie. Sometimes you're just like, oh, wait, okay. I feel like some stuff is going on here that I'm not being told. So I paused the movie a couple times to like, just do some quick reading, check out Wikipedia, what's going on, click a few links, things like that. So it was, just, it was just so fascinating learning more. And the more I was reading about them, the more I realized we were being withheld some sort of information. Mm-hmm. And it's tough because the type of movie it is where because they're fighting against the the Communist Party of China, you know that they're not going to necessarily act rationally, sanely, logically, anything like that. Anything that is a threat to the CCP, 
they are going to, you know, clamp down on with all of its force. And so you see, like, you hear they're, they're telling these stories about people being beaten mercilessly by the cops and being taken to, you know, black sites of detention centers where they can be interrogated and beaten some more and uh, all the rights being taken away and everyone being homeless of this group and things like that. And you're watching and you go, yeah, I can definitely see the Chinese government doing this. Like, we hear about this in the news all the time. This makes perfect sense. But then there's also this like weird sort of disconnect where they're like, hey, we were doing nothing at all. And all of a sudden they bust down our door and are beating on us. And it's like, (laughs) okay, I feel like we're missing a bit of the story here. What happened, you know, before they, you know, break down your door Mm -hmm. that caused all this sort of stuff. And so it's it's, it's just that weird disconnect where you're like, yes, I can see the, you know, the CCP doing this. But also, you know, I'm trying to think logically and be like. Not like, did you deserve it? But like, what happened before that caused you to put yourself on the radar of the CCP and all this sort of stuff? And all that sort of information was left out. Yeah. And so that was the the most frustrating thing for me is because especially when you compare it to something like Blue Island, as we were talking about at the very beginning here is, oh, yeah, you have two groups that sort of have a common enemy, but, you know, they go about different ways. It's, it's, it's like when you, you know, in Canada – when the NDP and the conservatives, you know, are arguing the same point and you're like, wait, are you coming to the same conclusion <laughs> naturally or are you taking completely different paths to get there? That's what I need to know whether or not who do I agree with sort of thing. And that, that's sort of what's happening is with this is you're like, yes, I vehemently am against the CCP, you know, all the injustices that they're doing to people. That's terrible and everyone should fight back against it. But also what path are you taking to get there is what I need to know of whether or not I support you. So that's interesting. So I I had said, like, I don't know if I necessarily think that documentary filmmaker needs to both sides a story. Like we've seen so many documentaries that are just like, I think of like Fahrenheit 9-11. That's always mm-hmm. my like example of a film that is preaching something that I mostly believe, like agree with. I agreed with what Michael Moore's um, presentation of that was. However, it's obviously incredibly biased and incredibly one-sided, right? Like, I always remember that he came to Toronto and did the thing of like, I'm just opening doors in Toronto. And, like, oh, yeah, he, yeah. He f- and I'm like, how many though were not... Cause I don't know many people who leave their doors like unlocked in Toronto. If you did, it was probably because of an accident. Like you just kind of forgot about it mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, but it's not like people are just leaving their houses and walking away for like hours on end and then coming home like, oh, you know, oh my door's unlocked. Um, but anyways, so it, to me, it's always documentaries are always an interesting thing because some some of them can be um, personal essays as we're going to get into um, for, for a documentary later. Some of them can just be informative things like, uh, this is what's what's going on. Like this is what's happening, and then you have something like this, which is very politically motivated, and they do have an ulterior motive. So, do you think it's incumbent upon them that they should be showing you the full picture of it, even though like the person who's doing it is very clearly on one side? Yeah, and it, it's just such a, a frustrating sort of thing where you're trying to figure it out. And and you know, I'm, there's no right answer, is there? Like, there, I, I yeah, don't think there there's a right answer. Yeah, because it's like they could have been tricky and been like, you know, I'm I'm trying to think if I were them, what would I have done? I maybe have, would have raised those, like the controversies and, and what, you know, the the negative sides of their mm-hmm. thing, but then like present it as, yeah, we heard that this, but actually that's not the case. Like you can pre- present exactly. a counter argument in it, but at least maybe exactly. raise the issue and, and have that out there. But yeah, I, I agree. And, and I, I think also when you're watching it, 
and it seems like their only retort to anything is just Falun Gong is good. Okay, good at good at what? What are you it's good at? It's literally like their slogan. Like it, um, I don't read very much Chinese, but like I can see like those characters every time I. I just passed by it the other day. Actually, I was walking through Nathan Phillips, and um, I saw them, and I was like, "Oh yeah, they they still just say that. Like they literally just say Falun Gong is good. That's yeah, kind of their tagline, that which that I would tell me anything. Thing. No, it doesn't. But it's it's. I think I guess it's supposed like within the context of the CCP, which is just something simple of saying like, you know, they were so against not necessarily even the teachings of Falun Gong, I don't think. I just think that they didn't like the idea that there was a group that was not state mandated. Like it wasn't Mm -hmm. under their control and so many people were flocking towards it. And the one thing that can really bring down like the biggest threat to authoritarian regimes is like independent thought. So once you have groups starting to splinter and think about different things, um, you know, who knows what that leads to, right? Like that's why they don't like, like they ban so many books and, and education is very, very, very controlled over there. Um, so I think when they were putting, like when the CCP puts out their propaganda and saying like, it's a terrible thing, like it's, it's ruining our society and their counter argument is just like a very simple, no, it's good. Like they're lying to you. It's, it's good. It's fine. Yeah. And maybe, I mean, does it work? Maybe. Cause then you just kind of go, well, Oh, it is good. But then you kind of think in China, they don't really have the same access that we do. Like you said, when you were watching it, you paused, went online, looked up some stuff. Yeah. And we, generally speaking, I mean, without getting too into the weeds, it's like we generally have free internet in Canada. So we're not really blocked to too much stuff. Um, whereas in China, they do have very strict measures of like, um, you know, what what they're able to absorb through the internet but we're talking about back in 99 in the early 2000s mm-hmm. too so the internet wasn't even widely available back then um for anybody really and so where would they have gotten more information to go oh it, it's good okay like do you just buy it or do you go like well i, mean, I suppose maybe it's an effective thing because one they're being told like they've always been told what to think and then this is the one time that somebody goes actually they're wrong yeah. And so maybe it spurs like it, like it's like an inception thing. Like it plants a seed in your brain of oh, maybe they weren't right. Like maybe the CCP wasn't right about this cuz somebody out there thinks that Falun Gong is good. Mhm. So that's interesting. Maybe that was the whole point of why. But that that's always been their tagline, just it's good. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. Yeah, it just it just sort of raised more questions for me. I know, like, yeah, I know. What do you mean by good? What 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 does good mean? <laughs> yeah. But it's a, in a sense, it's a privilege that we have that we can stop and go like, what do you what do you mean by that? Like, we need yeah. more information because we didn't grow up in a way that was just here's a piece of information and don't be critical of it, don't be analytical of it. This is true. This is fact. That's it. That's sure. done. Right? Like we grew up with an education system that told us like actually like so what do you guys think about this? What's your opinion on it? Are they right? Are mm-hmm. they wrong? Like. And that that's that's a luxury we had. Now we got a few more movies left. We're gonna talk about them a little bit less because I think those first two were the the main ones we really mm-hmm. want to hit on. But uh, the next one is The Thief Collector, which is about a 1985 th- theft of William de Kooning's Woman Ochre was already a scandal. But when the perpetrators and their motives are uncovered, a far more outrageous, criminal, and utterly irresistible story of a seemingly mild mannered couple in rural Arizona emerges. There's basically three types of thieves. The first type is the theft of opportunity. 
The second is the individuals who are doing it for money. And then there's the third kind of art thief, and that's the art thief who steals for themselves. And those are the most dangerous. Rita and Jerry Alter were my aunt and uncle. Oh, they were definitely soulmates, and he would do anything for her. Their house was full of souvenirs from their travels around the world. It seems like this couple is really the story here. They're the mystery. What a tagline. What a summary that they wrote for I know, that. right? That so dramatic. It's, it's what <laughs> caught my so attention. Funny. That's really funny. Uh, a, a lot of documentaries are like so super serious. And yeah. I saw this, I'm just like, you know what? I want something a little bit lighter and fun. And you know what? It is, it's what I got. Like that. that's yeah, the kind of movie true. it is. But um, so this this is a movie about how this elderly couple uh, dies and uh, a appraisal company comes in to look at their belongings to figure out what's worth what and what they can sell and what should be just thrown into the garbage and all that sort of stuff. And they see this, you know, painting behind a door and they're like, what is this painting? And so they like bring it into their shop and suddenly someone recognizes it and they do some research and they realize that this is a painting that is worth, you know, at the time several million dollars. And it seems to keep ballooning up in its valuation to being up to a hundred million dollars, its value, which is kind of crazy, but that's besides the point. And then it's who are these people and how did they come into this? And so we get reenactments much like we get with, um, with uh, um, Blue Island, a, a unique sort of way where we actually have Glenn Howerton of It's Always in Sunny, Sunny in Philadelphia fame uh, playing the, the husband in this couple um, and kind of what their relationship is and how they might have gone about stealing this painting and what their lives were, were like. So this was a movie that you really didn't connect with and I really <laughs> did. And I think it completely comes down to the interpretation of how the facts were laid out because you look at this movie and they present a lot of crazy theories about what may or may not have happened. And they sort of half baked investigate them with a lot of it just being like, and we'll never really know, I guess, but maybe it actually happened this way. And I watched that just kind of accepting at face value and be like, huh, that is a crazy conspiracy. I like it. (laughs) And you, I feel like, on the other hand, watching it was like, yes, but this doesn't make sense. Why are you telling us this if you don't have an answer? Because there's no point. Like, I just don't get it. I just, I, like, I feel like, I like, my brain is missing, like, a fun chip or something <laughs> like that. Like, I just, I don't get it. Like, I, the reason I was attracted to it was because of Glenn Howerton, Dennis, the golden god himself. Like, the fact that he was in it, I was like okay i love always sunny um and i they have a podcast always sunny and he was at south by southwest talking about his wife's documentary and i was just like oh his wife's got and then and then i realized this was the same one so i was like oh, i'm gonna watch this um for dennis <laughs> i'm gonna watch it for dennis and it just was like i don't i like conspiracy theories that's the funny thing is like i love a good conspiracy theory i like hearing them and i like hearing like you know hollow earth and stuff like that like i can spend hours reading about it just because i find it fascinating (laughs) that some people think this way but like something like this to me is one it's not a conspiracy theory like area 51 or you know whatever because those are no pun intended like other earthly like they're just like they're not they're about the world in general whereas 
something like this is we're talking about two people who did exist. Like they are real human beings that did live on this earth and who are not here anymore to defend themselves. And sure, maybe they were a bit eccentric. Maybe they were dicks. We don't know. Like, like you and I don't know because we didn't know them. And then we have these people who are pouring over like a really crappy short story book, like a collection of short stories that the guy wrote. And they're going, oh, maybe these stories were based on truth. Like maybe he actually did those things. And they draw the dumbest conclusions that I've ever seen where they're just like, oh, there was a story about, um, you know, how he killed a, a Mexican laborer and put him in a septic tank. Oh, they had a septic tank. Oh, don't you remember when you go to their house and you you go to the bathroom? They will not let you flush the toilet. Like, they won't let you do that. Why was that? And you're just like, what the f-? Like, what are you talking? And then they go, they, maybe, maybe he did kill somebody in their septic tank. And you're just like, what the hell are you guys talking about? Like, how... It reminded me a lot of Twitter where it's like, you know, they always joke like Twitter has like a villain for the day. Mm, I don't know. What do they say? Yeah. Like the main character on Twitter, whatever. And people will inevitably dig into all of the old tweets, everything that this person has ever said on the internet and find kind of the most tenuous links to something sinister something bad. And that's what this whole documentary reminded me of. I'm just like, we're just making assumptions based off of, a crappy writer's book like he did like and and you know it's a fiction book as well just putting it out there but the thing is we don't know one way or another and they are very clear about that like there is no evidence to show whether they did those things or didn't do those things you can have your opinion but i don't is that really worth you know 90 minutes of of time on it like that that they poured resources into this to say oh maybe they did do it but I am very much so in the minority on this because I know that there are people who really, really enjoyed it and they thought it was fun because they were like, it's good that there's no answers. But I'm like, I need an answer. Otherwise, this is entirely pointless. I think I think that's sort of where I sort of land. I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all. And most of the time, it's just so frustrating where it's like, you know, all these global elites are, are ruling behind our backs and controlling everything and they're going to come for you and they're going to kill you and blah, blah, blah. I'm just like, none of this makes any sort of sense. If you think about it for two seconds and you ask a couple simple questions, your theory completely falls apart. And yet for something like this, it's just so, for the most part, so harmless. Uh, Like, because these people are no longer alive and to defend themselves, it's kind of shitty that like, they can't be like, yeah, I didn't kill someone. Don't make up lies about myself, please. I still have family alive and, and things like that. But the rest of it is just like so harmless of like, I don't know, you know, they had a lot of uh, weird art that looks to be way more expensive than they can afford on a teacher salary and, and whatever the the other person was working as. A spe- it was like a speech therapist and, mm-hmm. and something else. I can't remember what he was. Oh, he was a teacher and she was a speech therapist. That's what it was. And they're like, yeah, I don't know how they, you know, afforded these lavish vacations all the time and were able to come home with all this lavish artwork that is clearly worth way more than they let on and they claimed it was all fake, but in reality they were actually real pieces of work and they have one piece of stolen art. And so you kind of draw a bit of a a semi-logical conclusion of did they steal other art? If they stole one, could they have stolen more? And I think that's sort of real where the premise, like that's, that's what you hone in on. And that's what I was kind of like locking in on of if they did this one thing, yes, maybe they could have done other things. Not that they did, not that it means that they did. It just means that they could have. And I, and I think that's just something where I just like, you know, this is a fun little movie of, I can lock onto that and latch onto that. 
And the reenactments were so entertaining with Glenn They Howerton. were. I did enjoy those. But that like that's Glenn Howerton, yeah. right? Like that's like yeah. adding a good comedic bend. And I love the way like the colors too reminded me of like a Wes Anderson movie, the way that they did mm, them. Yeah. It I I like I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Um I don't, I do, like, I take your point that it's actually no, I there's something that you said. <laughs> Like you said, it's like it's harmless, right? Like a, a murder aside, having you know Mexican laborers in your septic tank, putting that whole issue aside, it's like harmless or not, it's a character assassination, right? Like it, if imagine it was you and like you're you're not there defending that, and people are just saying things that let's assume are outlandishly they're just lies about yourself, and even though it doesn't amount to something of saying like oh well maybe he stole like maybe dakota was stealing art like sure it doesn't damage the fabric doesn't call you a murderer but it does call Mm -hmm. you a thief and it does call you a liar and it does call you like a whole other slew of things and it's like would you really be okay with just sitting by and being like "Eh, it's just it's 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 no big deal like it's not it's not a huge deal like you know but it just i don't know it just it this really didn't work for me and i was just so annoyed by it like i was just so annoyed that there's good money and glenn howerton's time is being spent on something like this which it just leads to nothing and i don't mind like you know watching stuff that's last year we we um reviewed what was the one um come back anytime it was about the the ramen place in japan and we both loved it that's not really about anything you know it's just about a guy in his ramen shop like i am not opposed to things not necessarily making a point or making a political you know opinion or you know what i mean like that it doesn't need to be that but something like this it's like it's trying so hard to be i don't know like a netflix true crime doc or something like that and yet it just, it doesn't, it's not even that, you know, and those aren't even that good. Like, let's be real. But like, but it, I don't know. I don't know. I thought, I thought it knew that it was like, it felt like it was mocking those Netflix true crime dogs. Do you think that's that? I, I, I was wondering, yeah, I was wondering if that's kind of what they were going for. Like with the reenactments in particular, I feel like that yes. was, that was like, yeah, very satirical. But I, I did reenactments enjoy that, were yeah. so tongue in cheek. They were very funny. I did enjoy them. Like I liked when he, when Dennis, like I keep calling him Dennis, when he, um, <laughs> when he, when they steal the painting, it's like he just literally took an exacto knife and just yeah. cut it out of the frame. Like it was, there He's was like no shoving finesse. it down his jacket. And it's like yeah. sticking out his like Hilarious. shirt. That was very very funny. Like just like there's no finesse. There's no there's no sophistication no. behind it. It was yeah. No. But whatever. We're on opposite sides on this one. I and I and I know that like the majority of people they they have really enjoyed the Thief Collector because I did look up other reviews after I wrote mine and I was like oh it's just me great (laughs) I yeah I I definitely think there's going to be a large segment of people that like it and I can and I can totally see if I I'm normally the type of person that's like no that's not real I don't believe it and Mm -hmm. like sit there with my arms crossed and just sort of fuming internally and hate the movie and so I totally get where you're coming from and like there's you know if this movie took one slight misdirection I would totally be on the exact same side as you, but I I just had such a fun time with it. I think that that's what's going to get it at audience is that Glenn Howerton yeah. is entertaining and this movie is light and fluffy enough. And it's sort of mocking the, the, the rise of the true crime docu-series that have been going around. See, if they leaned into that more, like just been, you know, a complete 
like really, really, but then I, I suppose if you lean into it more, then you're kind of making a mockery of the people that you're interviewing. And that's not kind, like that's not a nice thing to do. But yeah, if they had done it as more of like a comedic thing in general, may I think I would have been more on board for it. Well, we'll move on now and we'll we'll talk about a movie called Shooting War, which was nine internationally renowned conflict photojournalists candidly shared the physical, emotional, and psychological challenges of the front lines and their struggles to come to terms with bearing witness to war's horror and devastation. Photographers are, are defined to some degree by the lasting images that they have. Boom! Instant ambush. In five seconds, there's 19 dead and 35 wounded. And I got the horizon straight. As soon as we published the story, bam, you know, aid groups came, they helped these poor desperate people. I think this job is a necessity. If there is no picture, there is no story. We were the acme of the profession. This is a documentary that's produced by the Globe and Mail, and they, they gathered all these people to give some sort of a talk. And then they basically turned their, you know, talk into a movie where they interviewed them one-on-one kind of recounting their, their life stories. And while they're talking about the different uh, places that they've been to, we get to see their actual photographs. And it's one of those movies that from a documentary making level, this movie is, is awful. You know, there's almost next to nothing interesting. It's someone talking in front of a, a black screen behind them. And then every once in a while, some photos pop up, but because these people have such interesting stories to tell and their photos are so evocative and bring up so many emotions of, of everything that has happened in the world, whether you can personally relate to what they're going, what they, what they were photographing or not as a spectator, it just really hits you hard emotionally. And so that's one of those things where it almost sort of feels like the type of movie you'd watch in school where you're like, okay, Mm -hmm. we're going to learn about this today. And it's just so dry, but because the people talking are interesting and fascinating and you know, the footage that they're showing you is, is, is gripping. You pay attention and you'll learn a lot. And it's almost nice that there are zero frills to this movie. It's just from, if you were to review it from a, a filmmaking perspective, you know, there's, you know, next to nothing. It's someone putting a camera on a tripod and hitting record. Don't you find it's um, probably for non-Canadian audiences. This won't make sense, but it's like, it is a very globe and mail production. Like you would expect, nothing more nothing less from the globe and mail to do something like mm-hmm. this like it's it's quite like it's nice looking you know like it's it's good quality photos and footage and the interviews like it's it's it looks swish and like it's very sophisticated like you said they have the black backgrounds and so it makes it look very um like you know like you're in a studio it's very you know whatever um but then yeah but the material itself can be i don't want to say dry because i like you said it's touching on some really important things and i think like one one aspect about it that i enjoyed it's like we sometimes when everything that's going on in in ukraine right now um i was kind of making a bit of fun of being like why are there so many pictures of zelensky all over the place i'm like who's taking these pictures but then the thing (laughs) is and it's just kind of like it's funny that he has a photographer at these things like it's but then you know i took a step back and i realized like no you need that like you do need a record of something because if we don't have that you know they the, the the saying is always like history is told by the victors and if unfortunately you know the victor doesn't end up 
the the wrong what what we would what like what you would think maybe is the wrong victor like the wrong side won because mm-hmm. that does happen um then the evidence that you know the other side was doing something and that that that's gone and so you do need to show you do need evidence of the devastation that's being caused you do need evidence of you know how murky war is not just the spoils of war and mm-hmm. what these conflict ph- photographers do is it is so important like it's such an important job but a job that i personally i think it gets very very overlooked in general because how often do you think of the photographer when you're looking at a picture, right? You just, oh, that's a nice picture, especially in our like social media age of just scrolling. Like we're just scrolling through, clicking through like gal- photo galleries and things like that. And you just go, Oh man. Yeah. Like that's really, that's really moving. That's really like, that's really sad. Like, Oh my God, look at that. Okay. Now on to the next thing, right? Like we don't pause as much when, for instance, if you're reading a national geographic, like the magazine, when you're, when we were younger, like you could actually sit there and like flip through it. I mean, you still can today, but I don't know how many people do that. Um, and so I think it's it's important to acknowledge that the people who took these pictures, what they're doing is, firstly, it's very worthwhile what they're doing. It's a very important job that they have. But also, it really can weigh on you. Like, it's it's not a great job by any stretch of the imagination. It does a lot of damage to you because if you're just surrounded by devastation and sadness and grief all day long, and that, that that's your career, like it can drive anybody mad. So there, there was a lot of, you know, touching stories about people who a lot of them had like suicidal thoughts. A lot of them, um, you know, they deal with, I think all of them deal with, you know, mental health issues that they need to get addressed. And some of them, depending on how old they were um, or how old they are, sorry, um, they don't actually go and get the help that they need because to them, it's like, I just, I take pictures for a living, you know? So I think it, it's an interesting look and something that's worthwhile um, to see. But I, I completely agree with you in terms of like the actual filmmaking side of it. It's a very paint by numbers documentary, but um, the subject matter is, is quite fascinating. Yeah. I, I think sort of, you know, going back to your point of you, you must document these things. It sort of reminds me of this story. I, I wish I could remember who had said it or, or what, where it came from, but I, I just remember that at the end of World War II, when the concentration camps were being liberated, mm-hmm. there was someone in the U.S. Army that was like, down the line, people are going to argue that this didn't happen or try to claim yeah. that it wasn't as bad as it actually was. So he made sure that uh, every concentration camp was photographed mm-hmm. meticulously, like literally hundreds and thousands of photographs for preserving literally the worst aspects of that because mm-hmm. he knew that maybe not in one year, maybe not in two years, but down the line, people are going to start to argue against it. And sure enough, you know, I know yeah. it was a big thing in the eighties where people tried to deny that the Holocaust happened and they were able to be like, no, look at these photos. This is why we took all these photos. And it's sort of the same thing that you were touching on of the worst aspects of humanity need to be preserved and recorded. So that way down the line, people can't say that didn't happen. And hopefully we learn from it and say, like, you know, we can't let this happen again. Because taking your point about the Holocaust, like, if you just said it, you know, just this is what happened. It sounds really unbelievable because I think we don't like to believe that humans could do Mm -hmm. something like that. We like to believe that we're not capable of such monstrous, like, just such crazy things to do to another human being, right? Like, we we like to think we're more evolved than that. Um but we weren't, you know, and when I say we, I just mean like humans as a species, like 
it's not always going to be working together and doing the right thing. Like there are going to be people who, who just do t- absolutely terrible things. And so having those um, photos and, and the videos too, like, you know, there's a lot of videos that were on in, in um, after the camp liberations and yeah, it's just a, a reminder of what happened and hopefully we don't do it again. And I'm glad that, you know, it's funny. I think about it today as you were, when you were saying that, it's like, I imagine people today, if, if God forbid something like this happens again, I mean, you could argue it, it is happening in some parts of the world. Um, it's like nowadays we're, we're so jaded. We're just like, Oh, that picture's obviously doctored. Like they obviously Photoshopped that or they did something like that, you know, but back then that kind of stuff, you know, maybe it, it existed, but like, I don't think it was a Photoshopping wasn't a real skill back then. Um, nor I don't think the technology was really around there. So it's important. And um, I'm glad that we have people who are willing to not just risk their life, like physically speaking, but like really risk their mental health um, in the name of doing something that is more important than I like that, than I think that we all appreciate it to be. Yeah. I try to remember what was the the terminology that they were talking about where it was like, moral injury yeah moral injury yeah. that's it thank you yeah, yeah. because you know we, we talk about ptsd and things like that yeah. and and that was something that these journalists suffer but also sometimes it's not quite that but it's similar to that and this idea of moral injury of as soon as you hear that concept you're just like oh my god that makes so much sense when you're when you're photographing something of you know someone literally dying mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you're wondering you're questioning am i doing the right thing am i invading someone's privacy am i whatever is going on and you're going through all these different thoughts in your head of is this the right thing or wrong thing to do and you coin the term moral injury and suddenly mm-hmm. it makes so much sense and you can understand how people in this situation could suffer from that and lead to different types of depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. whatever, spiraling out of control, leading to substance abuse and what have you. And they talk about that. They talk about like, especially the the older guy who's uh, photographing Vietnam War and he like yeah. talked about how he'd come back and like, start doing drugs openly in his office because he couldn't handle the pressure of all the things that he had seen and witnessed and was just sort of lashing out. And it's interesting, like, you know, these days when we talk about like, you know, cause everyone's got a camera in their pocket now. And so if you see something bad happen, people just like put their cameras up. And so many times people go, why didn't you go do something? Like, why didn't you go help that person that was being berated instead of just standing by videotaping them? And I wonder if, like, I think that these photographers must have an aspect that even though in a war zone, what are you going to do? Like, you shouldn't do anything, actually, because you probably are going to mess something up. But there is that feeling of such helplessness and probably a bit of guilt that, like, I'm just here to photograph it. I'm not here to help the situation in any shape, way, shape or form, like in the immediate anyways. Um but about moral injury, I just want to um, just say, like, so that term was coined by a professor um, from U of T, University of Toronto, uh, called Anthony Feinstein. Uh, and he worked for Sunnybrook. And he had created an article with the Globe and Mail, like a series um, that you can find on the Globe and Mail's website still. Like, it's it's a, it's an interesting series of, and then that's what kind of got turned into the documentary. Um, but yeah, but that that's what this whole film is based off, is, is uh, his work, is Professor Feinstein's work. Greetings, we're Technically a Conversation, a podcast for curious people by curious people. Every week, we take turns presenting a new topic. 
and the other host has no idea what the topic will be. We strive to educate in a way that's loose and fun. Our topics are all over the place, from light and funny to dark and sometimes spooky. Some of the topics we've covered include urban legends, civil rights activists, vampires, pop culture icons, the supernatural and occult, spies and espionage, science and astronomy, and other weird and random things. If any of these topics interest you, give our podcast a shot. Listen and subscribe at technicallyaconversation.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Parental advisory, we might use strong language. Well, let's move on to the last movie we're going to talk about, and that's one called Escape. Following the fall of the Kalmar Rouge regime, a woman and her infant daughter are forced to flee for their lives in 1981. Forty years later, the daughter, now a filmmaker, traces her mother's courageous steps and confronts their past. This is going to be a bit of a tricky one for me to kind of <laughs> review. We talked about it a bit before we started mm-hmm. recording. And it's funny, you know, I, I, I sort of feel like there's a bit of a theme this year with uh, the movies that we talked about as far as, uh, you know, oppressive regimes and things yeah. like that. And that sort of just worked out to the types of movies that we ended up watching this year. Uh, already talked about the Calma Rouge earlier when I was talking about the act of killing. Mm-hmm. This is a absolutely gorgeous, stunning movie. I know it's it's sort of funny following documentarians on Twitter and their sort of love-hate relationship with what drones have brought to the game and that they're able to get these very beautiful composed aerial shots where they're very mechanical as far as we move forward this much and then we stop exactly and we're zooming in and we're zooming out. It's all very controlled and beautiful because you're using machines in the same way that stuff like steady cams and dolly shots have done for other types of filmmaking. And I found this movie had some phenomenal drone shots, just just some of the most gorgeous ones I've ever seen uh, shooting Cambodia and all the beauty that this country has to offer. But the problem was I just found the way this movie was presented to be so boring and I feel terrible feeling that way because this is such a personal story about uh, a young woman who you know, was born in Cambodia, but doesn't remember being there because she was so young and her trying to retrace her, her mother's steps of what did she have to go to, to free herself from this terrible life and to give me this life that I now have in France. And it's this beautiful story, very personal, so affecting, but the way it's told in, in the way that they choose to shoot it and have the narration and the interviews and all that sort of stuff, just, it didn't connect for me. And I feel awful saying that, <laughs> but like much in the same way we can praise something like eternal spring for it. Um, yeah, yeah good point. formal inventiveness, mm-hmm. despite the fact that we disagree with the way the subject matter is presented. I can disagree with the way the, the formal narrative and the information is presented in this documentary, despite the fact that I can, connect the dots of this is important well-made film it's it's such a funny thing like it's such a i think documentaries in particular have such a um they have this contradiction in a way of like the subject matter is one aspect of it to talk about but then the filmmaking is the other and generally speaking when you have something as personal as this and as meaningful as this it's like the filmmaking (sighs) I don't want to say it doesn't matter because I think it does because it's like 
we shouldn't be belaboring over like oh like you know the the pacing and the editing it wasn't really great and like that because it's <laughs> it's not about that right and i there was another film like i was we were talking about this before we came on here i was like there's another movie called silent beauty that is a part of that which i had the same quote unquote problem with where the 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 subject matter is so important and it is so deep and and tragic that to talk about the filmmaking feels very trite and very um silly like it's just it's just the, the, what's the point of it like why are we talking about you know that when when this movie is not about that the movie is about so much more but the fact is it's like if you you can have a, a really beautifully written book like the story is beautiful but if there's a ton of grammar errors if if the paragraphing is off the formatting is off you're not going to enjoy it because like the thing is you need the medium to to connect with you in some way, shape or form. So I completely get what you mean by, even though it's, it's something that's important and you know, it is, it just, it just didn't connect with you because it just wasn't delivered in a way that you find um, palatable. I suppose best way to say it. I, I liked it. I, I, I think um, I enjoyed the documentary. I liked the story of it. I thought um, I enjoyed the dynamic between the mom and the daughter. Um, I appreciated that you know, for instance, because the mom really didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> and I thought it was funny <laughs> that the daughter's like, I don't care, like we're doing this documentary because, and I see where she's coming from, you know, as, and I think as, as I get older, I think about it, it's like, you know, family histories get lost all the time because especially I think for Asian people, we don't talk about it. Like we don't, people mm-hmm. don't like talking about their history of like, you know, I have a lot of friends, like Korean friends, for example, whose families, you know, some there's like a North and South split and nobody wants to talk about that. Like it, they don't want to talk about the fact that they have an uncle that lives in North Korea and no one knows what's going on with him. And it's just, and it's sad to think of because we should be capturing our history a little bit better and not so ashamed to talk about the tragic things. Um, and you know, I do think it is kind of quite an Asian thing to just be like, I'm not going to talk about the bad stuff. I'm just going to talk about the good stuff. And like, why dwell on it? Why look at that? You know? Um, and so I, I can understand why the mom too was like, I'm never going back to Cambodia. Why would I ever go back there? Uh, I, I left it for a reason, right? Like I, I built my life in, in France for a reason. Um, and yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I don't think it's the best documentary that was ever made. Like I, I completely see your points and I understand why it might not have connected with you, but I, I enjoyed it. I found it, I did connect with it and I did, um, I didn't, I didn't find it. Like I, the, that other movie, Silent Beauty, was one that I just completely didn't connect with and I just didn't, yeah, didn't connect with it at all. Whereas this one I did and I can see, but mm. I can see a lot of similarities running between the two um, in terms of how they're made in terms of filmmaking. Maybe this would be the type of movie that if I saw it in a theater where I could be more immersed, I might have enjoyed Maybe. it more because so much of it was about like the meditation of past with these very slow tracking shots of of the landscapes and and things like that where mm-hmm. there's just not a lot happening, you know, and there's lots of scenes of like waves crashing and what does that mean as far as the symbolism goes and, and, mm-hmm. and things like that. I think if maybe I was in a theater, I'd be able to be a little bit more immersed by it. Mm-hmm. But in this case, yeah, it was like, oh, how much of this movie is left? Oh, I got a text <laughs> message. I'll quickly reply to that and things like that. And we're just like, oh boy, it, it was just, it just didn't hold my attention. But yeah, I, I found it very funny, this aspect of the, 
this woman wanted to make this documentary come hell or high water. And the mother's like, no, I'm not talking about this. It was tough. It was hard. Yeah. I survived. That's all you need to know. <laughs> but I, I, I get it. You know, and we, we were talking about, you know, world war two and the Holocaust before it's like, there are so many um, survivors from the Holocaust who don't ever want to talk about it. Like the fact is, yeah. is um, they all have like a tattoo on their arm that reminds them every day and they don't want to talk about it as much as we want to say. And, you know, when we're asking for these stories, you know, I already brought up the idea of privilege, but it's like, we, we are asking from a point of privilege because we don't have to face those things. Like we want to know, cause we go, it's important to preserve the history, but to them, they're kind of like, who the hell cares? Like I had to deal with this and I don't want to talk about it. Like this is something that it ravages your brain far beyond anything that we could ever comprehend because we've never lived in that situation. So I do like I, on one hand, I see where, why the daughter is like, this is important. We got to do this, especially being a filmmaker herself. Like this is something that is worthwhile, but I completely understand where the mom's coming from as well. Just being like, leave it alone, please. Like I, this was a sad thing to go through. A lot of people that she knew, like who were making the migration didn't make it, you know? And, and they, they talk about like infant babies were just left behind. Um, women were being raped. Like it, it was a lot of, crappy things that happen so why are you making me relive this um but you know i i i think it's worth it it's, it's just a shame like i do understand why that why you might not want to relive those tragic tragic moments of your life mm-hmm. especially because like you know she and i think the mom talks about too about being in paris and being like i bought this house like i made this life for myself and, mm-hmm. and she should be proud of that and why not focus maybe on that instead <laughs> versus why are we focusing on all the crappy things like why not focus on look what I turned my life into in a, in a different country. Like she didn't speak French before she got there. And now like, look at her, she's Frenching it up all the time. Like it's great. Yeah. <laughs> and then like a little spoiler alert, it's just very funny at the very end. Uh, the daughter is, is back in Cambodia and we reveal that she has a young daughter of her own. That's, you know, probably four years old or something like that. Mm-hmm. And she like says to her daughter, next time grandma will come with us. And I'm like, Nope, grandma ain't coming. She, ain't coming. There. she not coming. <laughs> do not, do not use a grandchild to guilt her and yeah. going. No, I yeah. get like, I get it. Like just respect the fact that they all want to go. And she did, the mom did offer like stories. Like she did, even oh, though she, she did, she yeah. didn't want to like, she does recount some of it. It's just, I can like, you know, why want to re- why do you want to talk about like the worst moments of your life? Especially because it happened so long ago, too. Well, that uh, sort of wraps up all the the ones that we we both saw that we want to talk about. Very, very, very briefly, we both have ones that we want to recommend. We'll, we'll kind of touch on them. Uh, I saw one called The Art of Silence, which is a documentary about the the famous mime Marcel Marceau, uh, who is a French mime who sort of captured the world's imagination in the 70s onwards with his pantomime act. This is a movie, you know, Marceau was always a very reclusive artist and not a lot of people knew a lot about him, despite the fact that he, you know, gave tons of interviews and was very public. It was always about the craft. And I think this movie does an interesting job of, you know, showing why the craft was so important to him. And we do get some very interesting backstory, you know, especially... Once again, going back to World War II, uh, him being Jewish and when the Nazis invaded France, what that sort of did to his family and stuff like that and how he sort of became a bit of a resistance fighter. But then the movie is sort of told from the perspective of 
his uh, wife who's still alive, uh, two of his daughters, and his grandson who are working on a production sort of celebrating his work and how they sort of come to terms with reinventing and incorporating the things that he was most known for, but making it their own, but still doing a good job of honoring him at the same time. And so it's very interesting, sort of this intergenerational family story of how do you revisit a famous person's legacy now that they're gone and how best to celebrate them. Uh, if, if you're a fan of, you know, of, of art and, you know, performance and stuff like that. It's got a whole bunch to offer and I, and I wholly recommend it. I really enjoyed it. It's, you know, it's funny, it's sad, it's sweet. It's, it kind of hits all the different notes and more specifically, it short of, it sort of sheds light on a subject, on a person who I knew about but didn't know a lot and I sort of learned a lot about it, and so I appreciated that. I liked, like, that idea of the film because, um, or from Marcel Mousseau to be one because, so many people know the name and I don't know how many, like, I don't, I know nothing about him other than he's a mime. Like, that's it. Yeah. I, I don't know anything beyond that, but yet his name has been, and like, how is it like a mime became so prevalent in pop culture that like, you know, I remember, I think the first time I ever heard it was in like a friends episode. They say something about mm. Marcel Marceau and I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. Like, I don't know what that is, but like, you know, like just, it, it's something that comes in your head and, something that everyone knows what it is, but no one really knows what it is at the same time, which I think it's, it's such an interesting topic for a documentary. Um, the one that I saw that you didn't get a chance to see, and I do highly recommend it for you in particular, because I think you'll really like it is the kids in the hall documentary. It's called kids in the hall comedy punks was the full name for it. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know and shame on you, if you don't know who these guys are, it is a comedy troupe group that came out of Toronto. They're from across Canada, but they, they, uh, organized, shall we say in Toronto back in the eighties. And they were basically like an alternative to Saturday night live. Um, and then what would later come like MT or not MTV, mad TV, uh, in Canada, there was also something called SCTV at the same time, though that was a bit more of a mainstream hit. Kids in the Hall was always this kind of alternative underground um, suburban angst, you know, and they were quite edgy for their time. Uh, they talked about things like alcoholism and uh, one of them, the guy, Scott Thompson, he was full out, like fully out as gay. And and that at, for the time period, it's kind of funny to think of now because really nowadays, if you're out, like no one really cares that much. But for him, it was like being out in the 80s and not just being out, but like being very like a very proud gay man and using um sometimes borderline stereotypes or whatever like flamboyancy in his performance for the time was very very edgy and especially when you add on the fact that at that moment there was an AIDS epidemic happening and so it felt a bit more like you didn't really talk about being gay then um and the documentary just goes over their formation in Toronto each of them individually what they got up to like the highs and the lows of their career as a group um, and then they did have, and then they go over some of the kind of the more sad bits of their career as well. Like Scott Thompson was diagnosed with leukemia, two of the guys, Dave Foley and the other guy's names blanking my, my head right now, but they had a bit of a falling out. Two of the other guys, um, shipped off to SNL at one point. Cause Lauren Michaels was actually a really big supporter of kids in the hall. Um, so that documentary is actually out on Amazon prime now. So you don't even have to wait for it. 
very, very good. Recommend it. Um, if you don't know much about the kids, watch it, educate yourself. If you do know a lot about them already, it's really cool watching them talk about their career. Um, they do a group interview and they also do individual interviews and it's, it's fantastic. Like they, it's, it's a really, really well done doc. Uh, and they released a new season of Kids in the Hall, which is also on Amazon Prime. So I think that that just got released last night on the 13th, if I'm not mistaken. So basically, the May is month. Uh, May is the month of Kids in the Hall, and I would highly recommend it to anybody who's interested in like comedy and, uh, or if you're just a fan of Kids in the Hall. You love it. I'm I'm very excited yeah. to watch this. I'm excited to watch the new season. Uh, sad that I wasn't able to watch it and we can discuss it. But yeah, that's definitely something that's right in my wheelhouse. Yeah, I knew you would really like it. And I would have loved to have been able to share that with you, but I couldn't. So, um, but yeah, oh. I, I think you in particular, I think you'll really like it. Awesome. Well, I think that wraps up our coverage of hot dogs for this year. Another fantastic festival. Uh, I'm very happy that we got the chance to talk about it. Rachel, where can people find you and more of your work? Go to rachelkh.com and on Twitter at underscore rachelkh. Awesome. And I will link to your reviews in the show notes. So uh, you wrote about several of these movies and so people can read about your thoughts more there. You can follow this show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. If you saw anything during Hot Docs, let us know. Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. Thanks for checking this out. Mm-hmm.